All right. Hey there. Welcome to the Legacy Wealth Podcast. Today I have on the uh, show is Matt King. And uh, I know Matt King uh, from GoBundance. We, uh, he's the CEO of GoBundance, and uh, we're bringing him here on the show today to help us understand uh, investing from the LP perspective. So welcome to the show, uh, Matt. Yeah, thanks, Pascal. Thanks for what you're doing, man. I think uh, there needs to be more education put out for LPs when making inve- investments. I think uh, it's like the wild, wild west right now. And so I think educating people and, and teaching them what to look for and what to pay attention to is super important. So I, I applaud you for that. I think it's really, really needed in the space right now. Thanks, man. Yeah, we're all uh, we're all learning in on this journey together. So uh, let, let's kind of start out with what give us your background, your story related to how you eventually started investing in funds. Yeah, so uh, I was just born and raised in a small town in Wisconsin, man. I, I thought LPs was a type of propane or natural gas. Like when I was growing up, like I had no idea it meant limited partner. Uh, I was fortunate enough to move to Austin, Texas about nine years ago to work for David Osborne, whose family office I now run uh, and oversee in addition to being the CEO of GoBundance. Uh, and the way I was exposed to investing was just through like trial. Um, David is is a serial entrepreneur and a serial investor. And so I've seen everything from CPG or consumer product good stuff to different debt structures to LP comp- LP funds to GP funds, like I've seen everything and I've just really gotten a crash course in what to do um, through being a part of his family office. Um, growing up, I never would have thought of myself as as an investor in this, in this vein. I didn't even know it was possible, candidly. Um, I thought an investor was somebody that bought a house and rented it. Like to me, that was the definition of an investor. So um, I've really had to learn all of this by just getting in the trenches, rolling up my sleeves and seeing it firsthand. Um, I never graduated from college. I dropped out to start my own business. So I'm not like Harvard trained or MBA trained in like underwriting deals and understanding structures. It's just like school of hard knocks and just learning it by cutting my teeth, getting out on the streets and seeing deals and doing deals and um, comparing things, asking questions, being curious and talking to the right people that have educated me along the way. Yeah. So so when it came to investing, did you first start investing your own funds? Did you invest on behalf of David Osborne? Yeah. It sounds like from from David Osborne's perspective. Yeah, I've been very fortunate to be able to invest, you know, to watch him invest his funds and then transition into slowly investing his funds. And then as a byproduct of that, getting to invest mine, too. So the journey started with me just looking over his shoulder and watching him deploy his capital and choose where to put money. Um, and it slowly evolved into me now being the, the driver. I mean, ultimately, it's his world. So he's got final say so. But uh, I do all the due diligence. I do all the underwriting. I bring the suggestions to him and then and then make the decisions and you know just get his stamp and, and his blessing. Um, and so I started off with his money. Um, but I've always looked at his money as if it were my own. I think the, the problem a lot of people make when overseeing other people's funds is they don't have the same attachment to the outcome because it's not their money. And if you don't have attachment to the outcome and assume it's not your money, I think you start to run into some issues with just like, you know, mismanagement and not not paying attention to the the details, which is the most important part in investing. So started with his money um, and him doing it. It led to his money and me doing it. And now it's, you know, his money and my money um, and getting to do both of them, which is a pretty cool journey that I've been on. Definitely. Definitely. Okay. That's awesome. So that's a, that's a great little backstory there. What, tell us, tell us about, uh, you know, this one's a little bit nuanced because you've been working with David. Tell us about maybe your first uh, fund. You know, it wasn't, you know, your first fund because you were uh, leveraging the experience of David. But but talk to us about maybe the first fund that you were involved with and how 
what that process was like, how you picked the deal, why that asset class. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So really what, what from an LP perspective, like kind of my beliefs have come full circle. I really suggest that people should only making LP investments if it's outside of their area of expertise. You know, it stands for limited partner for a reason. And really the only time you want to be a limited partner is when it's not in your area of expertise. If I'm a doctor and I'm investing in some sort of a doctor medical device, if I can't create that own medical device, that's a great opportunity to be an LP in a fund that does those investments. If I'm a real estate developer, I probably have no business being an LP in other real estate developers opportunities. If I can control the outcome and be the GP inside of a deal, the economics are in my favor. So um, the first time I was really exposed to an LP deal, it was in the tech space. So David is, is mostly real estate and we really understand real estate. So when we want exposure to different asset classes that we're not experts in, that's when we seek an LP position. And so I remember it was a tech fund based out of Austin um, and it was focused on primarily like tech companies based in central Texas. Um, and we wanted exposure to the space. We didn't really have as much exposure to technology nine years ago as, as we thought we needed. And you know, hindsight, we got the exposure we wanted. We should have just gotten out about a year ago because we would have timed the market perfectly, but that's impossible to do because when you're an LP in a fund, you don't control the duration. You're just a, you're just a passive participant in the deal. So I always look at the sponsor first and want to really understand who is the person we're investing in. You're investing in an opportunity, you're investing in an asset class, but at the end of the day, the who is the most important thing. If that person has a track record of success across many industries, across many markets, across many cycles, it gives me a really good vote of confidence. If that person is doing their first ever real estate fund and their main job is being a doctor, I'm probably pretty nervous to be an LP in that deal. Because remember, being an LP, you're passive capital. And so basically what somebody is saying is, is I don't have enough equity to put in this deal by myself. And so I need other people's money and I need to pay them a return for using their money as a way to get this deal done. So if I'm, you know, there's a saying like teaching somebody how to shave, but on your face. So I don't want somebody to learn how to shave on my face. So I don't want to be an LP in a deal where it's somebody's first deal because my capital is at risk, right? Like they might have a little bit of skin in the game, but generally my capital is at risk. So when we first made our investment, we were a small chunk of a very large tech fund. It was the second fund the guy has done. He had had a track record of success. He had had really good founders around him on his board. He had really good companies co-investing like Sequoia and some other big names co-investing inside of the fund. And so we started to see all of these signs of like, just like, this is the right deal for us because it was de-risked a lot. <coughs> um, so, you know, that, that was really like the first forte into deals. Now, you know, fast forward nine years, I've seen tech, I've seen real estate, I've seen single family, multifamily development, CPG, medical, space, like you name it. I've, I've had the opportunity to see many of the deals. And the, the question I'm always asking myself is who is the sponsor and what is their track record? Like I wanna know that they have a track record of success and they have an unfair advantage in the space that I cannot get in the space unless I am with them. And not space isn't going to the moon, space is in the asset class. So um, if it's single family homes, for instance, investing in our fund that David runs, you have an unfair advantage. He owns the eighth largest residential real estate brokerage in the United States with 5,000 agents across North Texas, New Mexico, and Memphis. Like we have an unfair advantage. We know the market. We see the market. We have boots on the ground across the country. If you came to us and said, hey, I want to invest in your oil and gas fund, we don't know the market. We're not experts in the space and we don't have an unfair advantage. But if we invest in Brian Sheffield's fund, Formentera, 
His grandfather grew up in Midland. They own thousands of acres. He grew up in the oil fields. He knows everybody that there is to know in, in uh, West Texas. And now we have an unfair advantage because of investing in his fund. We get access to all of his resources, all of his deals. And so that makes us feel comfortable about going in into his deal as an LP. Yeah, it makes sense. So when you're when you're investing, do you have like a do you have a cash flow goal in mind? Do you have an equity growth goal? Are you are you saying, hey, I'm investing in this for primarily the tax benefit? Like, what is the how are you, how do you figure out first what your investment objective is, and then are you saying like, oh, I'm interested in equity growth only, so like, don't even care about the cash por- cash flow portion of this deal, or I'm going to focus more on um, things that don't return any capital until the end of the investment. How do you think about that? It depends, man. So I think you need to look at your capital as in as in buckets of capital. I think some of it needs to be growth only. I think some of it needs to be growth plus income. And then I think some of it needs to be income only. And you look at it as if it's growth only, it's probably got a higher downside potential than if it's cash flow only. So things that have a huge growth potential probably also have a huge, huge downside potential. So I would say about five to 10% of our portfolio is growth only. It's like investing in tech, hoping it gets to the moon. And if it doesn't, we probably lost our money. Um, Now, the beauty of investing as an LP in tech funds is you get diverse exposure to multiple technologies. Rather than trying to pick the one winner out of all the possible winners in technology, you get to invest in a fund that hopefully is diversifying its assets across 10 or 15 different assets. And now you have some sort of downside protection because you have diversity across the portfolio and you don't need all of them to hit a home run. It would be great, but not likely. Then I think some of it needs to be some growth with a cash flow component. That's where like, I would say you want about 50% of your portfolio or 40% of your portfolio. That's where like you have some opportunity for upside, but you have consistent cash flow along the way. This would be like multifamily that does some repositioning or rehab. This would look like a fix and flip type fund. Now, now is not a good time to invest in fix and flip, but you know, opportunities that the cash flow day one is solid, but there's juice left in the deal. If you can improve the product, increase the occupancy, improve the rent collections, et cetera. Um, and then the, the main portion of your, of your portfolio, that other 50% should be cash flow only. This should be like the boring horizontal income, super safe. It's going to grow at three to 5% a year, but it's going to spit off a seven to 10% distribution annually. And that's where you're like, that's your safe money. That's like, I can go to bed and know that I can rely on that check to keep coming in. I'm going to hopefully outpace inflation, which in this market, it's tough to do, but over the long term, I'm going to outpace inflation and I'm not going to lose that capital. I think you have to look at your capital like soldiers. When you, when you have this army of soldiers, if you send them in a, into a war that they can win, all of those soldiers can come back plus take the territory you sent them to, to take. If you send them into a war that you're going to lose some people, now whether or not you take that territory, you may have lost some of your soldiers along the way. And so you might not be able to generate the same amount of returns from your money as if you had all of those soldiers still today. So you kind of got to take your assets and put them into buckets and say, what is my risk exposure, which depends on, you know, how big are your guts? And then most importantly, like, what is the tenure of your investment career? If you're 28 or 32 or 35, like us, you have a longer duration. So you can be a little bit riskier because you have time on your side. If you're 60 and you just sold KFC chicken and you got 50 million bucks, but you don't want to work anymore, I'd put all that money into a safe bucket because if I lose it all, I don't want to have to go back to work. So you kind of got to look at where you're at in life and what fits you. 
Uh, and then you've got to diversify across those three buckets to make sure that you have exposure to everything, but you protect your downside and don't cap your upside to a place you feel comfortable. Give me, give me an idea of like how much, how much you've helped deploy with David and maybe with yourself and, and help me understand, like, are you, I, you know, you're not, I'm assuming you're not investing in every deal that David is investing in. So, mm-hmm. uh, first maybe like let's check that assumption yeah. but I, I you know how do you go about picking which ones are you're participating with are you focusing more on cash flow are you mo- more on equity are you are you kind of divvying it across all three like you, you just mentioned yeah so i've probably been a part of the deployment i mean if you look at our fund that we manage as well as and, and our debt funds as a part of that we've probably deployed over 300 million in assets over the last nine years I'd say of David's capital alone, it's probably been 40 to 50 million. Um, now, you know, capital recycles and stuff like that. So, but we've just seen a lot of deals. I mean, we've, I've, we've probably invested in 100, 150 deals since I've been with him. Um, so I've seen a lot of opportunities. I've seen a lot of things. How do I deploy my capital is a great question. Obviously, I don't have as many soldiers in my military as he has in his military for that analogy. So I have to be a little bit prudent about where I put my soldiers. I can't invest in every single thing he does because I just don't have that much capital. Um, but I look at it the exact same way I just laid it out. I have some in the long run, you know, home home run, swing for the fences, bucket, understanding that if it's a strikeout, it's a strikeout. I have some like trying to hit doubles or triples, but at least getting on base. And then I have some where it's just base hits and boring, but it's at least spitting off some cash flow. Given where I'm at, I'm 32. Given where I'm at in my age, I have probably about 15% in the home run bucket, about 20 to 30% in the super safe, boring bucket. And then the rest is in the swing for the doubles or the triples, but have a little bit of downside protection too. Because I have a longer track to, to continue to make money because I'm only 32. Now, I don't want to work forever, but time generally is on your side. And the greatest determiner of how your wealth will compound is time. And so like, I'm fortunate that I have time. If my parents were looking at making investments, they're in their 60s talking about retirement. I'd say like, don't put anything in the swing for the fences buckets, put everything in the safe bucket, but maybe 10%, put that in the doubles and triples bucket, but super safe at the same time. So um, I kind of look at that that way with my money. Um, I'll sit down and talk to my wife about what we're doing and why. Um, She's interested in it, but it's sort of a foreign language to her. Um, and so she'll ask a lot of really good questions that, you know, sometimes I can get frustrated because I just want to go fast, but it forces me to slow down and be like, yeah, that's a great question. Am I okay if we lose that 20 grand or 30 grand? Am I okay if we only make 10% on that 30 grand? Like, are we okay with this or how is it going to look? Um, and then the other thing we do is we always try to be conscious of like the tax consequences. So I always say this, like, I don't like paying taxes, but you only pay taxes when you're making money. So, you know, I try to be conscious of like, am I putting it into vehicles that are taxed advantaged, not avoid tax altogether, because I haven't found a way to do that yet. If there is one long term, I'd, I'd be interested in it. But my gut tells me it doesn't exist. So I just look for things that are tax advantaged um, and just try to make sense. Like if you invest in um, notes, for instance, depending on the vehicle you um, invest through, you can be exposed to UBTI, which is like an excess tax that you just don't want exposure to. So if you're investing in an asset class that has the UBTI, you wanna make sure you invest through the right trust or um, 401k so that you can avoid that UBTI and you don't hinder your returns through you know, paying too much tax. 
So, you know, all of those things I take into account, but at the end of the day, I look at the operator, I look at the opportunity, and then I look at my risk appetite and say like, is it the right op operator? If it's a yes, then I go, is it the right opportunity? You know, right now, if it was the right operator in real estate, I'd probably be like, I don't think now's a good time to do fix and flips. I know you have an amazing track record. You have a really unique advantage, but I don't think right now I want exposure to equity and single family residential real estate from a flipping perspective. So I would say right operator, wrong opportunity for me at this moment in time. Now, if it was oil and gas or a different commodities and it was the right operator, I'd say right operator, right opportunity. Now, how much of my risk do I want to expose to this asset? Um, and so that's sort of like the matrix I use or the lens I look through when thinking about investing. So what I'm hearing is you're, you're taking, you're, you're building up cash from your cash cow, your, your job, whatever. Um, and then you're, you're starting to invest it in these deals. How are you finding the, how are you picking the asset class? So, you know, how did, how do you decide like, oh, you know, right now I, I want to invest in oil and gas versus yeah. multifamily. Is it like, oh, I have opportunities come to my desk and then, and then I evaluate the operator and then the opportunity, or is it, or do you come at it from a, all right, I, I, from an asset allocation perspective, I want to put, you know, 20% of my money into oil and gas. Let me go look mm -hmm. at oil and gas opportunities. Yeah. So I'm a little bit more of a gunslinger than a calculated tactician when it comes to like how to deploy money. But I do think of it from an asset allocation perspective. And then I think from like a, what we're going through in this market or in this cycle, what do I want exposure to? In two years, my gut tells me we will have gone through some sort of a recession or correction in real estate. And two years from now might be a great time to get exposure back into real estate in a heavy way. So I might say, well, like given that real estate values have just corrected 40%, let's say it's the doomsday and doomsdays and everybody's panicking and there's blood in the streets. Now, all of a sudden I'll go, well, wow, like three years ago, I could have bought that dollar for a dollar, but today I can buy it for 60 cents. Like, yeah, I want that dollar. That's a good, that's a good advantage for me. Um, but I also then think a little bit about like, I don't want to put all my eggs in one basket. I think like in life, we oftentimes will end up putting all of our eggs in one basket and then we become a behold it to whatever that basket was. Whether it's a wealth manager, whether it's a house we live in, whether it's a community we grew up in, uh, or whether it's a job or whether it's an investment, like we kind of like are all in type creatures, generally speaking. And so I try not to be all in with my capital. So I don't want 100% exposure to the stock market. So like the traditional thing is work really hard, put money in your 401k, work until you can retire and then retire and live off of your 401k. But guess what? If you have exposure to the public markets and that's the only exposure you have, if the public markets are down 20% when you go to retire, guess what? Your retirement's worth 20% less than you thought it was. And that may change your ability to retire. I don't wanna be beholden to one thing. So I want some exposure to the public markets, which is a game I'm not smart enough to understand. And it's played by professionals that I don't know how to bump elbows with. So I don't play it much because I think like the people at, in the bars in New York are manipulating the system and figuring out how to win in ways that I don't have an advantage, nor do I want an advantage. So I have a very small exposure to that. I'll have an exposure to like Carnival Cruise Lines when in COVID, the book value of their ships was more than double the stock price of their stock. Like, yeah, that's an unfair advantage. That doesn't make any sense. They could liquidate their ships for more than what the company's worth. That I'll invest in that. That's an easy investment for me. Um, but right now I don't have a bunch of exposure to the stock markets because A, I think, you know, there's a bloodbath waiting to happen and B, I just don't understand it. So I'm going to stay out of it. Um, but then when it comes to like oil and gas, I'm like, 
I don't see oil and gas going anywhere. Yeah, I think Elon Musk and Tesla and battery powered things are changing the world, but I haven't seen a battery powered plane yet. Uh, and I'm sure it's coming. It's only a matter of time. But until they solve the problem of traveling without fuel, like oil and gas is still going to be a thing. Like it's powering ships, it's powering cars. Like that's a pretty safe, stable space for me to be in. So then when you look at during COVID, when gas was $1.60 or $1.80, but a year prior it was $4, you go, well, that's more than 50% on the dollar. Like I'll invest in oil and gas. Um, so you kind of just look at where we're at in the market. You kind of look at the different opportunities and go, like, what do I feel comfortable with and what do I want exposure to to make sure that my assets are allocated in a way that I feel comfortable, but I'm not beholden to one single asset class? Yeah. And then I, I guess like, so you mentioned you don't have that much exposure to, to stocks and stuff. Like what, what made that transition happen? Why, why are you so interested in funds over, you know, something else? You know, dude, nothing. The only thing that made that transition happen was the job I picked. So when I came to work for David, there was no 401k. It was like, you have the opportunity to invest alongside of me in deals. And I don't, you know, I don't put money in the stock market. This was David. He's like, I don't put money in the stock market. So I'd be a false profit if I set up a 401k for you. I'm like, well, that's cool. Like, let me learn about it. And so I just saw like this opportunity to like, I don't want to say manipulate, but control the outcome a little bit more. Like if I can be an active participant, even as an LP in the space and understand it better than I can, if I invest in Tesla and I'm just beholden to whatever Elon Musk and his beautiful company do, I want to like stack the chips in my favor and I can stack the chips in my favor if I have some influence and some understanding on the asset class. And so for me, that was much more interesting. I'm kind of a control freak. Um, And so when you can have a little bit more control over your investments, like I have this belief like nobody's going to care about my money as much as me and my family do. I don't care how incredible a wealth manager is. I don't care how nice of a human is. They're making a fee to manage my money, but they're getting paid that fee regardless of if my assets go up or if my assets go down. So I would rather invest my money with a GP who's put their money in the same deal as mine. And when I win, they win. And when I lose, they lose. Like that to me is exciting. So, you know, I just, I was just fortunate to never be exposed to the stock markets in the in the career path I was I was given and I've earned and to me it's just never been a possibility because again I'm just not willing to learn that space. That makes that totally makes sense. So you you've been harping a lot on the operator. Like, you know, first and foremost, the deal could look great, but if you don't trust the operator, it doesn't matter. Give me give me an idea. What's your due diligence process look like? Is it uh hey, I go on a trip with this person and if I just if it doesn't feel good, then you know, or is it like I ask these questions, I do background, like what, what does that process look like? Yeah, so it depends on where the operator came from. If it came from like a trusted uncle who's invested with this operator for 15 years, I don't have to do much due diligence. I trust my uncle. He's put his money in there. He showed me the returns. I don't have to do a bunch of due diligence. If it's a random dude that emails me that I don't know who it is, yeah, I need to get on a phone with him. I need to see some sort of a background check. I need to talk to a reference and see what they've experienced, how long they've invested. Really what I want to see in a human is how do they manage adversity? If you talk to an investor that says like, I've never lost money, either A, they're full of shit or B, they've never sold anything. So they haven't realized the loss, but they have something that's lost money. Like that's just fact. Like Warren Buffett says like, you never lose money if you don't sell an asset. That's true. And I'm not going to argue with Warren Buffett. However, I still want to know when he's losing money on a deal, how does he manage through it? Does he ignore it and try to like pull the wool over the eyes of his investors? Or does he 
confront it head on and say, guys, I made a mistake. I thought C's candy was going to do this and it did this instead. So here's how we're going to pivot and here's how we're going to reposition. Like, I want to see how a human manages through adversity because that to me tells me everything I need to know. Are they going to stand in the front of the room with their chest puffed out and saying, I made a mistake. Let me tell you how I'm going to fix it. And here's their plan. Or are they going to hide in the back of the room and be a victim of the markets and not answer my phone calls and not show up when things go wrong? Do you have a, do you have an example? Uh, I have a lot of examples, but I'm not going to use them. I'm not going to use them. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Fair, fair, fair. That's uh, yeah. but there, there's so many examples, man. Like there's so many, like I can use, I can give you some examples. So there's some tech companies we've invested in some tech funds. When things are going well, they call all the time telling me about how great it's going. Like, Hey, I got some really confidential news. You can't tell anybody. I'm like, well, you breach confidentiality by calling me. So it must not be that confidential. So they call me like, I got some really good news. You can't tell anybody, but Hey, we just got this valuation or we just got this offer or when SPACs were sexy. Like we think we're going to sell as a SPAC for a hundred X. Like, so you get all excited, but guess what? When tech goes from, you know, $5 million to $2 million, they don't call. They don't return your calls as quickly. They're not quickly eager to call you and say like, yeah, we're down 50%. We just got an offer to sell at a loss. Stock price got hammered. Like they're not eager to pick up the phone. So like that to me tells me a lot about the operator. I'd have way more respect if the dude called me in good times and in bad and said, hey, we're down. Here's how we're managing it. Here's how we're thinking of repositioning our portfolio. Here's how we're increasing the value. Here's the way we've changed our investment thesis. Like I want humans that will hit problems head on with honesty and integrity. Um, and to me, that's like all you got at the end of the day, man. That's it. Um, so the operator, like, how do I do my due diligence? I, I see where they came from. If they came from a trusted source, then great. It's a lot easier. If they didn't, I want to see their financials. I want to see their underwriting. I want to look at the loan documents. Like, I want to ask to see under the hood completely. And if they start getting tight around things, that's usually a red flag that something's not what they told me it was going to be. If they only will show me their model in PDF and they won't send me the Excel format, probably means formulas are hard coded because either A, they don't know how to make the formula do what they want it to do, or B, they're making the formula show me numbers I want, not show me numbers that I should have. And an example of that is one time I asked for the Excel model on a PDF and the guy sent it to me and I went into the, the cells that were calculating the total return quarter by quarter. And when they were doing the, the cumulative year over year, it was taking the quarters and multiplying it. It was taking one quarter and multiplying it by 4.25. And I was like, why is it multiplying it by 4.25? There's four quarters in the year. He's like, oh yeah, well that's just to manage out this, uh, the cyclicalness of the quarters. I'm like, well, you can't put a buffer to your favor to manage out the volatility of the quarters. Like that doesn't make any sense to me. So it was like, showing me that like, hey, I want to show this number better than what it is in reality. And I'm going to add in a quarter of a quarter to make the numbers look better. Like red flag number one, I'm out. Um, and I would have never caught that if I took his PDF thing for word. Like if I took the PDF thing for word, I would have been like, looks like a pretty good deal. So, you know, I ask a lot of questions and then I see how this, the human responds. Like, you know, I've, I've, I've had the privilege of talking to you a bunch. Like you're an honest, transparent, like open book. Like, let me show you the numbers. Let me show you everything. Let me like, sure you want that. Let me get it for you. That to me gives me faith. That to me gives me confidence. But when you talk to somebody and like, Hey, sorry, we don't disclose that. Or, Hey, I'm going to need you to sign an NDA or Hey, I'm going to need you to do this. It's like, what are you trying to hide? Like, unless you have the next recipe for Coca-Cola, like nothing is confidential in this world anymore. Like everything's on the internet. So like, 
I don't want to go figure out how to do oil and gas wells. Just send me the model so I can see the numbers. That's it. That's all I want. Great points. Great points on on honesty and trust and, and really understanding the operator. I uh, also loved, I uh, actually just had a, a discussion the other day about um, checking PDFs and making sure you get the Excel models and just making, so uh, uh, plus one on simple. that. It's simple. And it's kind of just like, uh, you know, this was, this was awesome so far. I would love to just kind of wrap um, maybe with one or more two questions. I'd love to understand maybe one of your uh, best or best, like favorite investments uh, and, and why that is, or maybe one of your yeah. favorite operators and why they're one of your favorite operators. Yeah. So one of our favorite operators is, is uh, a guy that focuses on distressed debt. And um, he's my favorite operator because he always underwrites conservatively and always doesn't assume any juice or upside potential. So when you see the deal and you see it's like a 1.7 multiple, Given his track record, given his underwriting, given the deals, you know it's probably going to be higher, but he doesn't make any assumptions that the juice is going to actually be realized. He assumes like base case, worst case scenario, we're hitting a 1.7x. And so I feel like really confident about that. And the thing I like about that space a lot is it all has collateral value tied to real estate. So that's a real asset that will have some value somewhere. Now, if I bought the real estate asset for $100, maybe I can't sell it for 100, but it's certainly not zero. It's somewhere in between, no matter what happens. Even if there's a fire on the property and the property burns down, the land still has a value. So I know that some of my capital is protected. So like that space is my favorite because you have downside protection, but you're not capped on your upside potential because of, you know, just how you can how you can manipulate distressed debt and how you can work out do different workout scenarios and lever it and all that stuff. Um so that's probably my favorite space to invest in. I understand it. I understand how you can underwrite real estate. I understand how you can come up with a value. I understand that the borrower is paying us something. Even if they're subperforming, I'm getting some cash flow on my investments. Um, so I really, really like that space. Um, I've always been a fan of that space. Um, you know, another space that I like liked a lot, and I still like it. I just don't think now is a great time. Is single family like? I think that's an incredible space to invest in, but I just don't know that right now is the right time to buy single family homes. Now, if you're doing land and you're doing stuff with publicly traded and large regional builders, like that's really interesting to me because again, you have an, a value that land has value. If you can structure the deals in the right way, you can have the, the end buyer, the builder paying you some sort of an option fee or a current pay component to, to have the rights to that land in the future. And so to me, that space is super attractive. So you'll hear like the same sort of narrative echo through it. I want to protect my downside and make sure that I can't lose all my money. I don't want to cap my ups, but I want some cash flow along the way. That's sort of like my ammo. Uh, that was awesome, Matt. Thank you so much for, for joining us on the show. And um, if, uh, if anyone wants to reach out to you, how, how best can they do that? Yeah, I think the best way would just be go through GoBundance or just, uh, you know, Facebook or Instagram or whatever. I, I'm not... Uh, a huge social media website or, you know, something guru. I'm just pretty simple. And if, if I can be of service, I'll give you my email to throw in the show notes. If I can be of service, feel free to reach out. But you know, my last piece of parting advice to everybody would just be like, pay attention to fee structures associated with deals, pay attention to the leverage assumptions associated with deals and ask a bunch of questions and ask for re uh, references always like, Always ask for references, even if you don't call them, at least get a list of people that you know you could call that that person told you has invested with them before. So you can at least do some sort of checking on, on the deal itself and make sure you're not getting into the next Bernie Madoff Ponzi scheme. Love it.
Love it. Thank you again for hopping on the show, Matt. And um, thank you everyone for tuning in. Thank you, man. Appreciate it.